Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Richard. Sir. How are you, man? All the big parts are still attached. <laughs> <laughs> not too bad. It's not bad. decapitation if the head doesn't come all the way off. That's true. <laughs> uh, in other news, um, <laughs> I'm very excited to have uh, Mark Seaman back on the show. He's a brilliant One guy. People. One of our favorite people. And our Better Know framework is for him. So roll the music. All right, dude, what do you got? Mark, you there? I'm, I'm here. All right. Well, you know, the, one of the reasons that we're, we're so enamored of you is that you, your pedigree is amazing. Like you come from the same school as Anders Halsberg. You, you know, you're both from Copenhagen. It's very, mm-hmm. you're very intellectual. You have great taste in food. You took us out to dinner when we were in Copenhagen to this amazing place. Um, the topics that you talk about on .NET Rocks are so vast and varied, but they're always deep. And we really appreciate that about you. But I want you to know, Denmark isn't the only country that is known for innovation. For That's example, true. America, full of innovation. And I would say stands up against Denmark in a very special way. Now, my Better Know Framework URL is 1759.pwop.me, because this is show 1759, believe it or not. And I give you American innovation, presto, pizzazz, plus rotating pizza oven. That's very nice. (laughs) (laughs) This looks like somebody strapped an iron to a microwave platter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, while it's not C-sharp or, you know, uh, flow or anything like that, it is a rotating pizza oven that heats from the bottom and has an element that cooks from the top as well. It's less than 50 bucks, and it saves as much as 60% in energy costs. Very good. So is it is it the pizza oven that rotates or is it the pizza inside? Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's a philosophical. Well, now you're getting all existential on this, like that. <laughs> you said Leave it was it a rotating to, pizza oven, right? Leave it up to a Dane to ask a question like that. <laughs> this is not a bad machine, really. No, actually, like, it's got 13,715 almost five-star ratings as of now. Wow, wow. But, but the bottom line is you have heat from above and below on a rotating disc, so it's going to be even. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a burn hazard, but other than that, it's like, this is, yeah, uh, you know, don't drop it in the sink, right? <laughs> you know, don't put it, don't put a hamster on the wheel. Like there's lots of things you don't want to do with this thing. Well, how about this? You know, it's you not know, a bad I, little reheating tool. You know, honey, what do you feel like? I don't know. Pizza? Well, <laughs> let's not order in. Let's make our own. Oh, but it's such a pain to take it out of the freezer and put it in the oven. Let's set up a <laughs> rotating thing with a stuff on it that heats from below and beyond and then we'll have to wash it afterwards hey that sounds really convenient let's do that american innovation for you i got this old iron yeah right (laughs) it looks like an iron doesn't it it does look like an iron yeah radiating Iron. It's brilliant. I really. Iron. I mean, who's got counter space for that? But then you all, it's America. You have giant houses. Mm. You don't have, you, you got room for those things. Right. Of course. All right. Enough of that. Uh, Richard, who's talking to us today? Grab a comment off of 1685, the last show we did with Mark, when we talked about there being a silver bullet in development, which was actually 
a, a reference to a great Fred Brooks essay about No Silver Bullet, which is going all the way back to the 80s. And in fact, this comment, which admittedly a year ago now, from John Suda, who's a longtime listener yep, as well, yep. uh, was addresses that directly because it, it was a lot to explore. Mm. Uh, and John goes on to say, this episode was very frustrating. Don't make it round. I loved it. And I find your conversation extremely stimulating. My frustration came with not being able to jump in. Actually, I did, but you guys are really rude and arrogant and ignored me. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. <laughs> I hope you're on like the bus or the train or something. You start ranting. And it's like everybody leaves you alone. <laughs> is it schizophrenia or is it Bluetooth? You don't know. <laughs> anyway, this is a long comment, but well worth the read. Uh, first off, Fred Brooks wrote No Silver Boat in the mid-80s. It was very explicitly stipulated that he intended to make predictions for the, about the following decades, saying something to the effect of, I've been wrong, but please don't fault me on this. And three and a half decades later, this is a little unfair. Which, eh, okay. Yeah, okay, we'll give you that. Uh, and further, the subtitle of the essay reads, Essence and Accident in Software Engineering. He mostly ignored that. In doing so, he missed some essential points. Mr. Brooke argues that software developers solve essential and accidental problems. He uses the philosophical terms and I, that I find a little confusing. And I like to think of the problems as conceptual and technical. Very simply put... The conceptual ones deal with the problem domain, okay, the real world, and the technical ones deal with implementation details. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair. Mm -hmm. The point he makes is that the technological and process improvements can resolve the technical, i.e. the I, accidental stuff, uh, aspects of programming, but not the conceptual, the essential ones. And he goes on to say that most of the technical and accidental difficulties have been eliminated, and the conceptual essential ones are much harder to address, so you can't expect any silver bullets. Yeah. I, I agree that's what he said, and I think that's basically what we addressed was that a lot of the accidental stuff has been gone up, has been dealt with. Uh, and you could argue that he underestimated the pre prevalence of technical accidental problems in the 80s. And in fact, most silver bullets you talk of are, in my opinion, technical in nature. Automated builds, deployment, testing, delivery automation, as well as modes of delivery, the internet, and even Stack Overflow. How often do you Google domain problems as opposed to technical ones? Ah, depends on the domain. Yeah, uh, But here's what I believe the gist of the essay is. What makes software development hard is dealing with the messy real world, and you shouldn't expect any silver bullets in that department. In that respect, I think no silver bullet is relevant in 2020 as it is in 86. Although a lot of that automation stuff is about de creating repeatable process, which ultimately comes the silver bullet, that being able to reliably build code and, and to put your ideas out there right. and to iterate on them is what ultimately manufactures that silver bullet. But that would just be my opinion. Uh, and and Mark at the time responded with some eloquence <laughs> and also referred to his blog post, which I'd put into the show notes, and John read those and then wrote his own blog post as well. So I think oh, I'm just going to have to put his comments back in into the show notes too because they're all very thoughtful that, uh, it, that you know, things have are getting better. And, uh, that they're, you know what, if I really think about that show and correct me if you, by all means, correct me if you disagree, Mark, the biggest thing we talked about on that show is if you are using modern practices, if you avoid the, there's no silver bullet, just do it the way you want into, there really is a set of disciplines around this that can build better quality software, uh, and, and can get to accuracy and, and correctness quickly, uh, You'll make me, you know, that is awful silver bullish. Like it can be a lot less painful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the um, 
one of the major reasons why I originally wrote my own blog post about this was that I was getting a, a bit tired of people using this there's no silver bullet as sort of an excuse for not really looking into possible improvements that they could uh, actually apply if they care to look into them right uh, so i just wanted to to tangle with that you know with that notion um and and i completely agree with with john suda that we're, we're a little bit unfair if we're criticizing an essay that is 35 years old and it, that was really never my intent to 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 stand up and say hey look at me i'm you know 30 35 years later we realized that maybe fred brooks wasn't entirely correct um that was not really the point um so you know to paraphrase um William Gibson, you know, the future is already here. It's just very unevenly distributed. Right. And I think there's a lot of that with software as well. You know, there's a lot of things that you, that you can do uh, if you care to to take on, you know, various different practices and technologies, uh, but lots of people don't do them. Right. And and often use the the um the silver bullet, the no silver bullet argument, maybe not in those terms, mm -hmm. as to why they aren't using those practices. I think that was really what you went after. Yeah, like, yeah. You you can't use this excuse. These things are solved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, John, we agree with you most <laughs> vociferously. And thank you so much for your comment. And a copy of Music Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and everybody's on the show, We'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Uh, he's at Rich Campbell and I'm at Carl Franklin. Hey, send us a tweet, but make sure you cook it all the way through. <laughs> There's nothing worse no than soggy, soggy medals. There's nothing <laughs> worse than soggy tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants a tweet that's soggy in the middle. Come on. <laughs> all right. Let like me, the crispy tweets. Right. Crispy only. Uh, let me formally introduce our good friend, Mark Seaman. He helps programmers make code easier to maintain. His professional interests include functional programming, object-oriented development, software architecture, as well as software development in general. Apart from writing a book about dependency injection, he's also created several Pluralsight courses, videos for clean coders, and has written numerous articles and blog posts about programming. Mark is an independent consultant, author, and conference speaker, and as we mentioned before, he's from Copenhagen, Copenhagen, Denmark. And he's yep. in good company. Not, not, not so much conference speaker at the moment, though. True. Yeah. None of us are. No, no. Are Hoping to get back into it. Are you a conference Zoomer, at least? No, no. I've, I've, I really find it, you know, this, this thing about giving a conference talk from, from your own home, that is just the most depressing thing. So that, that you know, to the extent that I almost think that it's, it's a little bit not good for my health. So, so I'm, I'm not really doing that. <laughs> Less time yes. in the chair. All the stressors of doing a conference uh -huh. talk with none of the benefits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and several additional stressors. Yeah, 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 that's true. Nothing like the anxiety of just staring into <laughs> that little round disc of glass saying, respond to me, <laughs> respond to me. That reminds me, Richard, how's, uh, what's it looking like for December Dev Intersection in Vegas? Really great, actually. Cool. I mean, it's hard at the moment. We're recording this in early September. And uh, without a doubt, the Delta variant has flared up. And as the, the catchphrase goes, it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Right. 
um, which is terrible and terrifying terrible. And, and the worst kind of thing. This is a treatable problem that's easy to solve. It's depressing. And, and, and the fact that it's costing lives is shocking. So at this moment, it's it's fairly challenging, but the registrations have been excellent. The lineup is great. We have to hope that by December, uh, things will have stabilized enough. The the Nevada rules are pretty serious. Uh, we're we're well on the path to you know here in Canada, we're doing the vaccine proof thing, right? I have a little QR code on my phone now, that, so that, that my vaccine status can be instantly looked up. Yep. Uh, you can't fly on an airplane here. If you don't have proof of vaccination now, and I, and I wonder if that's just the path we're on. We're still working. We're we're not going to have all of those rules finalized for December uh, yet because the rules are changing. I, I think, uh, but we are working closely with the government officials. We're working with the uh, the state and the and the hotel. We want everyone to be safe, and we want everyone to come. Right, and and we don't want to make this a, a COVID show, but or a vaccine show, but yeah. You know, the, it's looking like we're developing two world economies here, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. If you want to participate in the vaccinated economy, you need to be vaccinated. It's, so there's, there's a financial incentive for you to get vaccinated. If you're this is beginning that. to sound like a Bruce Sterling novel. Oh, nice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but on the upside, you know, from the technical perspective, what's great about the December show, the first week of, being the first week of December in Vegas, mm. New version of .NET, right? Ooh, new version of Visual Studio. Oh yeah. New version of Windows. New version of SQL Server. Maui. Like, yeah. Uh, hope Maui. Like the the tech stack to get together with and explore. It's one of those peaks yep. that only comes along every few years. So all of the mo all, some of that tech's already shipped. The rest of it will all be out in November. Uh, this is kind of the first in-person event with everybody at it. It's kind of a big and, deal. You know, yeah, Mr. Hanselman's going to be there. Uh, Vice President Scott Hunter will be there. Nice. Uh, recently promoted. Yeah. Uh, of course, Mr. Guthrie will be there. And, uh, and a long list of extraordinary uh, creators of the product, uh, Mads Torgensen. And... Uh, and the folks that we know and uh, well that that help make these things work. So it's a, going to be a great time to explore the latest state of our tools. I'll be there, and, and I'm bringing my Pizzazz Plus rotating pizza oven. <laughs> <laughs> pizza for everyone. <laughs> and now you know, Carl, you're not allowed to bring food in, in the car. No, 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 but I can have it in my room. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Because um, you're big on pizza. I get that. Well, I'm big. I'm getting smaller. <laughs> I am getting smaller, I, but um, I do believe the road trips have burned us out of pizza pretty much. Totally, the rest of yeah, our yeah. Lives. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. completely facetious here, but I, but Mark, I, I hope that uh, we get to see you in the states soon, and you know, maybe this might be a good idea for you. Yeah, to, that'd uh, be great to visit. You'll be at Oslo, won't you? Um, I'm, I'm not sure actually. Uh, okay, no plans at the moment. Well, you never know. Yeah, every, all those things are in flux. All right, yeah. 15 minutes yeah. down, and we're just getting to our topic. <laughs> Code that fits in your head. Yeah. That sounds like a, a Mark Seaman topic, if I ever heard one. <laughs> totally. It, it's actually also very much uh, a North topic, 
it, it turns out. Um, so, um, and, and it's actually one of his catchphrases. It turns out. And I, I really promise that I, I didn't steal. I wasn't trying to steal his thunder or anything. Is this but, Dan um, North we're talking about? Yeah. Dan North. Yeah. Um, so he's actually, it turns out that he's actually been talking about that for at least 10 years. So maybe he might be the person who actually planted that, you know, catchphrase in, in my head. Nah. Uh, but that must have been subconscious then because, um, I am. Um, I started writing a book uh, last year, and 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 you'd probably think, well, it's it was because of the pandemic, but it actually started in already in January 2020. Um, but it just so happened then that when the pandemic ha- you know hit, uh, I had plenty of time to actually write it, so I managed to write it in a fairly you know um, fairly quick manner, and um, and it it actually it it. It, it had a, a, a few different topics and one of them, one of the main, you know, thesis in the book is that one of the reasons why software development is so difficult to sustain is because uh, we spend more time reading the code than we actually spend, you know, writing the code. So I, hmm. you know, I began to, you know, I've been thinking about that for a long time and I, I started to think about, okay, so what, why is it that we, spend so much time reading code instead of, of writing it. And, um, and I think I just, you know, encountered some other ideas. I, I listened to lots of podcasts and read a lot of, of pop size stuff and all sorts of other things. And I just came across this idea that, you know, we have, you know, short term memory and the short term memory we have is really, really limited. There's this famous um, experiment that goes back to 65 or something like that, the Miller experiment. And you probably heard this phrase called um, the magical number seven plus minus two. Um, but basically the, the, um, the idea is that, you know, we have short term memory that, that fits about oh. seven different things in our head. And right. that's about the capacity of our short term memory. So I started to think about is that, does that have something to do with, with our inability to, to, you know, manage large, large code bases? Um, hmm. And so that was one of the major ideas that I've had for a long time. So I, I, um, I, when I started writing the book, I, I wanted to make that one of my, the backbones of, of the, um, of the, um, of the book. The idea that the book, um, you know, pushes is that if we somehow, if we understand that maybe that's the problem, we can start go looking for solutions. Um, and originally I had a completely different title for the book, uh, in mind and, but that title, the publisher didn't really like. Uh, so they asked me for a lot of other titles and, uh, I just threw a lot of, of titles at the publisher. And one of the titles was, was uh, code that fits in your head. Um, which is probably just something that bubbled up from my subconscious because Dan North planted it there, you know, 10 years ago. Damn it. Um, Dan. Yeah. It turns out he does, he's done that to all of us. He, d- he does that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, uh, once they saw that I had a, you know, I couldn't really talk them out of it again, you know, even though afterwards I realized that, Hey, maybe it looks like I'm actually, you know, stealing Dan's idea. Um, so I've, I've, you know, I've apologized very profoundly to, to Dan and, and he's taking it in a good, in good uh, spirit. Um, so I think, I think we're good. I, I hope that we are. Um, but anyways, it's, it's a pretty good title for the book anyway. So, um, I hope, I hope that, um, that uh, he likes it when, so when he, when he sees I, it. I get the whole seven plus two uh-huh. minus two or whatever thing. Yeah. So if you're going to remember a digit, it should be seven, uh, after seven numbers. You, you tend to forget. So it, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny how U.S. and Canada um, telephone numbers are, are 10 digits, right? Right. But, yeah, but mm-hmm. so, but the, the, the Without seven. Without the area code, it's seven. Yeah, but this, the number seven here is not necessarily digits. It's just what we call chunks. Uh, yeah. So what you can do, for example, is if, no, I don't remember the, um, 
Um, I don't remember the, the US phone number system, but, you know, in Danish, we have eight digits phone numbers, but we typically, uh, you know, chunk them up in, in four two digit numbers. Sure. So minus 50, 50, and then some more. Um, so that's a little bit easier to remember because then it's only four chunks instead of eight or yeah, 10 I get in, it. in your case. Um, so yeah, so, so that's, that's one thing that, um, that, that sort of is a, you know, a common theme that, that runs through the book. And then I'm, I'm discussing all sorts of things you can do in order to, to try to address that problem. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is have somebody read to you a GUID. Oh yeah. Over the- <laughs> <laughs> What's that password again? What's that key? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that yeah. was a 1-900 number. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are usually mnemonic, right? So 1-900 bite me or something. <laughs> Which could I, be I actually, I actually heard, I actually heard an interview with one of those memory, ex, you know, stunt people, if you will, mm-hmm. those people who can perform amazing feats of, of memory. And, and he said that, what he does to remember, you know, ex- insane amounts of digits is that he has, you know, for groups of digits, every digits has a um, sort of a striking visual thing uh, associated with it. And then he starts to place those things in a, in a in an imaginary house. So he imagines a house and then he says, well, at the front door here, there's a cheetah that's eating a banana. And, and he's already memorized that a cheetah that is eating a banana is corresponds to the number 917 or something crazy oh like that. Oh my God, that's crazy. Uh, and then he, he sort of remembers what the house looks like. And then because he's, he's, he's committed those striking images into his long-term memory, which is probably infinite or, you know, or arbitrarily large, um, by walking, you know, he can remember what the house looks like. Um, and that's then how he remembers all those numbers. It's, it's a crazy technique. You know, it's analogous uh, that's to using... not in, that's not in my book. That's not a technique that I'm, I'm suggesting. <laughs> it's kind of analogous to using Outlook. <laughs> it's, it's, to, it's, it's to keep track of all the threats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the threats. No, but just like, you know, write a simple email, 50 gigs of RAM, yeah. you know, and all the threads. <laughs> well, right. Anyway. Yeah. That's a lot of RAM to uh, remember a number, but Hey, if it works. Yeah. 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 But the point being, don't go through the heroics of massive memorization keep things small oh, enough so absolutely. that it's easy to remember. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I talked with, um, I had a, a client a couple of years ago that they wanted me to, um, to help them, you know, make a, a sense of their legacy code base basically. And I got to interview uh, some of the, the people who work there and, and the guy who was the, um, the most recent hire in that team, he'd been there for one and a half years at that time. And I asked him, um, so how long did it actually take you before you felt that you could do something in that code base on your own? And uh, he didn't really hesitate. He just says, well, it took three months. Um, and, and I, and I think that what happens in those three months is that instead of working with your short term memory, you actually painstakingly start to commit the structure of a legacy code base into your long-term memory, which has, you know, arbitrarily large capacity, uh, although it's quite, you know, finicky, but, you know, we, you can store a lot of, of, of stuff in, in long-term memory. Um, mm-hmm. But then the problem starts to become that, you know, the stuff that you have stored, if you will, in your long-term memory, it stays there. And, and that means once you've committed the structure in, of a legacy code base into your long-term memory, you expect certain functions and certain classes and certain methods to be, you know, wherever you've 
you know, taught yourself that there are. And that means if you want to improve that legacy code base, if you want to refactor it, you might actually make things, you know, harder for yourself because now you're moving hmm. everything around and, and all the, you know, all this, the stuff that you've learned over many months, that just becomes invalid all of the, uh, all of a sudden. Hmm. And then if you refactored it into something that is still way too complicated for your short term memory, then, then you're a really bad spot. Um, so, so that's why, you know, the book talks a lot about, you know, try to, try to stay aggressively on this, on the side of writing, you know, small methods, small functions, small classes, and, and so on and so on. Because if, if you can, if you can keep the complexity of the code that you're writing, if you can keep it sufficiently low, um, you might actually be able to walk up to a piece of code that you've never seen before. And you can imagine if you walk up to a, a piece of code that you've never seen before, and it's like 15 lines of code in a method, and that's all there is. Mm, right. It's probably going to take you not too long to understand what's going on. Well, again, it depends. You know, some people write, you know, give variables bad names and so on. But if the code is otherwise fairly decently written, uh, you know, a 15 lines of code method on an entire class that takes up 20 lines of code, that's manageable. And, and, and if there's not a lot of if, if then branching and looping and so on going right. on, that probably fits in your brain because there's, you know, fewer than seven things going on. So you can sort of just look at it. And even if you haven't seen it before, you can say, well, yeah, I pretty much get, get what's going on here. But, but that also requires of the person who, who wrote that piece of code that they stay, you know, very well within those limits and, and, and they can't also, they can't really call out to global variables or all sorts of other things because then that's stuff you need to keep, you know, you, you need to keep track of as well. Um, yeah, I, I use Stack Overflow, but that's kind of like a, uh, a 1980s era 20 gig. RLL hard drive, isn't it? I mean, talk about slow. There's things that I can never remember about mm -hmm. programming oh, yeah. that I'm like, no, I saw this on Stack Overflow, and and I find myself going and you know maybe after the third time I'm like, hey, dummy, no, yeah, <laughs> you're writing yeah, a repo sure. or something, you know, right? Save this. But and and that's and that's perfectly aligned with what I'm talking about here because I'm talking about short term memory and the the thing that you have in short term memory, you know half a minute after you stopped thinking about it, it's gone or, you know, two seconds after you, you stop thinking about it, it's gone. Right. So, so the whole point is to be able to write code that, that mostly operates within the bounds of, of short term memory, because it, it means that you can, you can approach code, uh, even, even if you haven't seen it before and, and fairly easily get into, okay, I see what's going on here. I can tell what it is that I need to change. If I need to change something, if you need to fix a bug or whatever, and you make the changes or you call the code or whatever it is that you need to do with it. And once you've done with that, you can sort of, you know, walk away from it again. And it's basically gone from your memory. Um, and then that means someone else from your team can come, can walk up to that code and, and have a look at it, even though they'd not seen it before. And they should be able to get into it fairly quickly. Uh, and, and, and this should, should basically be able to, to keep going forever. Mm. Um, but the other thing you're talking about, you know, where you can't remember how to do a, a particular thing, that happens to me all the time as well. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just the way that our memory works. Sometimes you can remember things, and Richard can always remember things, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. how do you do that, yeah. Richard? <laughs> uh, I, I, my best guess is I don't actually have a short-term memory. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. 
but us mortals, you know, for us, it works, it works, it works in that way. Um, so, um, I remember, uh, I, I also recently heard another interview with a, with a, I think it was either a psychologist or some brain scientist who argued that basically the entire cognition that we are equipped with, uh, what it really does is it's, it, it's doing simulations of the real world so that, you know, we, we might have, you know, a philosophical idea about the real world as something that exists, even though we're not really there. Um, and, and it probably does unless you are René Descartes. Um, but, um, but, um, but even if we can agree that there's some sort of, you know, universal real world that exists outside of us, the way that we perceive the real world is actually some sort of interpretation or some sort of simulation, um, that, that sort of tries to understand what the real world is. Um, and I think that's the same thing that happens actually when we look at source code. We're, um, that's what happens to me anyway. When I look at some C sharp code, for example, I'm running a little emulator in my brain that sort of tries to keep track of, okay, so if the input argument name is, you know, foo, for example, and if the, if the, if the integer there is 42, then it's going to branch on this branch. And, you know, so you run this little emulator when you look in a code and, and particularly if there is some sort of state that you need to keep track of, you need to keep track of, okay, so this variable started out being 42, but now it's incremented. So now it's 42 or 43 and then you're going through a loop and you're sort of st- trying to keep track of all of those things and right. that's perfectly okay if you have to keep track of you know three or four things or maybe even seven things um, but if if you're looking at a piece of code where you have to keep track of 20 variables because they're local variables and they're you know class variables and they're global variables and so on then it becomes really difficult especially um, if so, you're using javascript oh, just saying <laughs> <laughs> Global variables in JavaScript are the bane of my existence. Carl, you promised me before we started the recording that you wouldn't talk about JavaScript. And now you're going to have done it anyway. <laughs> trying, to, trying to get you more listeners. <laughs> I actually wrote a blog post with some JavaScript, uh, you know, and, and I had Twitter. What? Yeah, I had Twitter followers say, you? well, yeah, is, 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 is this the second Thursday in the, in the week or what, what's happening here? Yeah. <laughs> And hold that thought for just a moment while we take a minute for this very important message. Do you spend too much effort on handling content in your project? Stop focusing on boring tasks and get back to code. Content by Kentico is a cloud-based headless CMS that comes with fast, world-class API. You can consume it in your .NET and Blazor apps through the .NET Core Delivery SDK. When you're building your application, you can query for content using Fluent API, which makes it easy to filter and order content items and streamline the data you transfer through the wire. What makes content truly unique is the ease of doing business with. You can ask anything 24-7 directly in the app, get a dedicated customer success manager, or an expert consultant if you need an extra hand. Content by Kentico comes with 17 years of experience in content management, ISO, and SOC2 Type 2 certifications, and is ready to handle all content tasks for you, so you can do what you enjoy. Put on headphones and code. See more at content.ai slash developers. That's K-O-N-T-E-N-T dot A-I slash developers and try it out. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Spot by NetApp. Spot provides a comprehensive suite of cloud ops tools that makes it easy to deliver continuously optimized and reliable infrastructure at the lowest possible cost 
while removing a lot of the manual and time-consuming tasks out of managing cloud infrastructure at scale. Imagine automating your infrastructure to proactively meet the needs of your applications as opposed to reacting to the constantly changing needs of your applications and developers. Imagine leveraging the latest in machine learning and automation to scale your infrastructure using the most efficient mix of instances and pricing models, eliminating the risks of over-provisioning and expensive lock-in. Imagine running reliable applications, cutting cloud costs significantly, and making life easier for DevOps teams so they can focus on faster deployments, reliability, and a seamless user experience. From cost management to infrastructure automation in CD to running serverless Spark on Kubernetes, Spot ensures you maximize your cloud investment. The end result is simply more cloud at less cost. Discover how the most innovative companies, from cloud-native growth machines to forward-thinking enterprises, are automating, simplifying, and optimizing their cloud infrastructure with Spot by NetApp. Check them out at spot.io slash rocks. That's spot.io slash R-O-C-K-S, where you can find more information, request a demo, or give it a try by starting a free trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's my friend Richard Campbell. Howdy. And that's our friend Mark Seaman. And we're talking about code that fits in your head, his new book. And I got to ask, you know, me being a musical guy and you understanding Mm -hmm. the connections between music and code, you know, whatever they are. Um, do you find yourself making up little songs about lines of code that you can never remember? Like, you know, task.run, parenthesis, async, paren, paren, equals greater than, await, async, constructor, paren, 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 semicolon. I, I don't, you, you definitely don't want to hear me, me sing. I actually try, I actually wanted to be a rock star when I was, when I was a teenager. And I, you know, I, I used to play guitar for, for quite a while. Uh, but I really don't have any talent. Uh, and you could just ask my entire family. I, you know, I basically can't sing at all. Well, you know, the difference uh, so, between a mutual fund and a musician, right? <laughs> One matures and earns money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Oh dear. Or if you want to use the pizza metaphor, the difference between a pepperoni pizza and a musician, pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> oh, no. Or maybe two. Nasty. <laughs> In my case, one. Yeah. Anyway, the list just keeps going, though. <laughs> right. So I, I, I was kind of half kidding with the, the whole making up songs thing. I don't know that mm-hmm. I'd do it, but, um, you know, I think. Creating a, a, a private repo of stuff that you can never remember is a good idea because you're always just a, a yeah. click away from it. Scott Hanselman famously uh, made made his blog really famous by taking everything that he ever wrote and making a blog post about it so he could refer to it later. Yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely happened to me as well. You know, sometimes I, I Google for something and then I figure, you know, I, I encounter my own blog post mm-hmm. or my own Stack Overflow, uh, you know, like, answers. Oh, so that, that's what but, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, looking through projects on your hard drive, not recommended. <laughs> no, no. Well, and, and it's also there's something about writing it down that does free your mind. Wow. Right? Oh, yeah, so. yes. This, you, you, don't, you don't learn anything, you know, as well as when you write, it, write things down. It's, it's incredible. Well, and teach it for that matter, yeah, too. I yeah. mean, we're, we're all conference presenters. Mm-hmm. I've never worked harder on a technology than when I'm going to present on it. Oh, that's, that's right. 
Yeah, but but you know, it's it's. I was thinking when you talked about all the new stuff that's coming out in November that uh, that mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, in in some sense, the book is already obsolete. But fortunately, it's not because it's not really written about a, a technology. It's it's written in. Um, it's written in, I think it's actually written on .NET 2.0 because at the time when I started writing the, um, the source code for the book, uh, that was the long-term stable version of, of .NET. Right. And, um, and, and then afterwards 3.30 came out, um, and 3.1. Uh, but I really didn't want to, uh, is there something called 3.1? No. I can't. There is. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That was but L- it, that was in the LTS. 3.1 was the LTS. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And five is not, and six is. Yeah, that's the thing. But I think I think three one came out so late that I had to freeze the code even even before that. But anyway, the code is uh, the, the code for the book is written. Um, it's written for obviously for C sharp developers, but the book is also written so that Java developers can can understand what's going on. And you know, if you're a TypeScript developer or C C plus plus developer, you can. You, you should be able to understand what's going on as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe even if you're ty- Python or Ruby developer, that's my hope anyway. Um, so, um, so it's not really dependent on technology uh, to that degree at all. One of the things I really liked about your um, book blog post was the story of a bug and how you addressed it. Fortunately, I don't squash my commits. Can you, can you tell that story? Oh, that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, so so this actually came around because I was working with the code base for the book, and um, and I'd been um, I'd been uh, you know deploying my code to um, to Azure you know occasionally just to make sure that you know what I that I actually practice what I preach. Uh, but I've been doing a lot of, of feature development uh, just you know on my local machine, and I hadn't really deployed it to the to the Azure cloud for for a week or something like that. And then I finally pushed it out to, the, to Azure and tried to to interact it, uh, with it um, on the Azure cloud, and I couldn't. There's there's a, there's a particular you know resource that requires you to uh, present a java uh, or json web token and i couldn't log into it i mean i, I just couldn't get it to work so i spent you know a couple of of hours just chasing uh, you know all sorts of red herrings and um and i couldn't uh, because i thought it was a um a, um, a certificate or a, a J- jwt issue first Jot. um but it turned out that probably wasn't it. Um, so I spent uh, some more time trying to narrow down where, what the problem might be. And then, you know, I had a, um, I managed to figure out a way to reproduce the problem on my local machine, uh, with just a few steps. And, uh, but I just still didn't understand, you know, what was the problem? Uh, and then it dawned on me that, you know, it actually had worked a week ago because I remember that I've been, you know, locking in, if you will, presenting with a, with a JWT and, and being able to see that protected resource, you know, a week before. Um, so I knew that I must have introduced a bug somewhere in between, you know, last week and then the new deployment that I made. And so the only problem that I had there was that I had a, around 150 commits, uh, you know, between the last week and, and the new week. I do very small commits um so um so git has this fantastic feature called bisect uh, which basically means that if you have some sort of way to detect whether or not you know the um the defect is is present or absent in a particular commit what you can do is you can point it to you know basically two commits to to um to commit in in uh, two boundaries if you will uh, so you can point to one commit and saying i know the system worked 
at this particular commit. So that was a week, right. a week back. And then I took the most recent commit that I had and say, well, this is definitely a bad commit because it, the, you know, the, the defect is present here. And then what it does is it's basically just, you know, picks a halfway commit and it checks that out for you and it asks you, okay, so do you think that the defect is also present um, in this particular commit? Hmm. And I had this, you know, fairly easy way to reproduce the the problem. And I reproduced the problem and I said, I, I can't remember if it, was, if it was present in the halfway or not, but let's just say it was. So I said, yeah, it's also present here. And, it, and then Git says, okay, so now I know that it's not in the other half. I know it's in, the, in this in new half because it picked the halfway point. So now it picks a new halfway point, you know, which is the halfway point. You're doing a binary the, sort. It, it, it's it's <laughs> actually exactly what it does. Um, so hmm. instead of having to search through 150 different commits to find, you know, where did you actually introduce the defect, it takes like seven or eight steps to search through um, 150 um, commits. And then, you know, once it, it, it identifies exactly which commit it was, you say, okay, so this is the commit ID uh, where that's the first commit where this defect is present. I checked it out and I looked at it. And because I do very small commits, um, I, I think I looked at it for all of 20 seconds and I say, okay, I understand what's going on. And obviously, of course, it was a piece of, of state mutation. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm big on... I like functional programming, so yeah. But mutating state is a is a bad idea, and it turned out that was the problem here as well. Of course, so, it you, was. Know, you know, yeah, but of course it was. And the fix was, yeah, I basically just had to move a line of code um, from outside a lambda expression inside, uh, no, from inside of a lambda expression to outside, something like that. Awesome. In one of those things. I had to move a line of code. That was the fix. But I also appreciate the idea that. You don't automatically detect a bug the moment you deploy it. No, that's, that's that was the problem there. Yeah. Yeah. Months later, mm -hmm. this behavior cre reaches your awareness and you've got to, you know, search around for well, yeah. where did this come from? Yeah, exactly. And so people often ask me or ask about, you know, Git bisect, can you, or can you automate it? And obviously, well, not obviously, but yes, absolutely you can. Um, but the problem is that if you already have automated tests, but this particular defect actually slipped by all your automated tests, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't work to just run your automated tests and then try to do the bisect technique. At least you have to write some other automation that was not in the original commit in order to detect, you know, where it is. Um, but typically what I found here is that, you know, if I could boil, if I could reduce the, the detection of whether or not the defect was in a commit to just a, a few um, steps, a few simple steps, um, then it was fairly easy to do. I, I, I could detect mm -hmm. that that thing within uh, you know ten seconds or something like that. I had, nice. yeah. Um, so it was a fairly um, if it, it was fairly quick uh, process to um, to find the defect once once I started doing uh, you know the the binary search as, as Carl says. Uh, so that's one of the things that's all that uh, you know I put all sorts of different things in the book, but you know this one definitely went into the book as well because I I have a um, I don't think it's a, it's not an entire chapter, but there's a really long, you know, like five or 10 pages uh, about troubleshooting and it's not about debugging at all. It's, it's actually about those other things like binary, binary search and bisection and uh, oh, basically just trying to understand what the problem is, which, which is often, you know, the hard part of fixing a defect. Yeah. No question. And yeah, it, it, it is this it, the easy ones you would have caught with tests. Oh yeah, you, you catch them. You catch them up front. 
you notice right away and so forth. All of the insidious ones. And I, like I'm, you know, immersed in the IT space right now where mm-hmm. we're dealing with vulnerabilities that are years old. Yeah. That are now being exploited for ransomware. Like, it, you, bloody hell. You almost don't think of it as a bug, but listen, <laughs> it's a bug. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're, they have to track them down. Yeah, so, so this is actually also a thing that I sometimes discuss, and I discuss this a little bit in my book because uh, obviously um, we want to we want the software that we write to produce value. Um, but I'm sometimes I get into discussions with people who take this idea of value very seriously because they basically um, take they're, they're taking this idea about you know every line of code that you write should produce value. Uh, to mean that if you can't somehow connect a line of code with some, you know, key performance indicator, uh, that's, you know, on a shared information radiator in the, in the common team room. I mean, if you can't do that, you shouldn't be writing that piece of, uh, of code. If, right. you, if you can't, you know, directly connect it to some sort of KPI. Um, and I'm, I understand where that sentiment comes from because I've also met programmers who were, you know, sitting in, in a corner quietly and, you know, playing with their own little framework and never really producing anything of, of, you know, of value at all. So I understand where this sentiment is coming from, but we also need to be aware that sometimes, just as you said, Richard, that, you know, if we, if we don't do the right thing, we might introduce some sort of problem that can come back and cost us a lot of money. Um, But in the, in the, you know, more distant future, not in next week or or, or the next quarter, but somewhere down the line, um, this is going to come and haunt us. And security problems is definitely one such, you know, big such uh, problem. Um, but I also think, you know, basically, you know, things that, that pertain to software, to code maintenance, you know, again, coming back to this idea about your ability to read the code and understand what's going on versus it's being really difficult to work with the code and understand what's going on. It, this is also one of those things that have, you know, downstream, um, you know, potentially very big downstream costs. Uh, whereas you can sometimes, if you if you do the right thing up front, you can say, well, if we just invest invest like just a little bit more time, like five percent, if you just in five percent more time, you just do things right, you know, write that unit test, you know, give things a good name, think a little bit about, you know, what does the API actually look like? Get someone else to look at it, you know, do pair programming, do code reviews, whatever, but get someone else to also look at the code. That could actually prevent code rot. Um, and then maybe you're not going to be in that position, you know, two, two years from now where, um, you, you basically have to throw in the towel and, and tell your manager that, well, we can't really maintain this code base anymore because we got to nope. rewrite. Yeah. We got to do a rewrite. Can we please do a rewrite? And I mean, it's just, yeah, I understand why that happens, but it keeps happening. Uh, and, yeah. and that's one of the things that I wanted to do with, you know, basically with what I've been doing for years, but what I also wanted to do with this book, you know, give you or give the reader a a catalog from they can, you know, use as inspiration in order to try to avoid that particular thing from happening. Um, I I also wonder if organizations incentivize the rewrite. uh, Yeah. The dev themselves is like, hey, you know what? Writing new code is easier than maintaining other people's code, Mm -hmm. especially when they haven't, read your book and really thought about how is somebody else going to perceive this code. But also 
that the organization itself tends not to concern itself too much with documentation, concern itself too much with tests, mm-hmm. like create code that is maintainable. And then their behavior is reflected on it too. One of the things that's great about a rewrite is they stop bugging you for a few months. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, I've heard, you know, plenty of stories where, you know, then you have a team that is responsible responsible for doing the rewrite while there's another maintenance team that still needs to maintain the old still system. Still fighting the fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then, you know, since the rewrites, uh, you know, it turns out that the rewrite will always take longer than you'd expected it to, you yep. know, even though you take into account Hofstadter's law, you know, you know Hofstadter's law, law right? Mm-hmm. A, pr- a project always takes longer than you expect it to, even if you take Hofstadter's law into account. And don't trust yeah. Yeah. Kernel Clink. <laughs> well, <laughs> but anyway, so you have this, so you have this new team or this Taika team or whatever it is that's that's you know working on the the rewrite, the brand new shiny thing, and then you have this other team that's still in maintenance mode. But the maintenance mode will still be asked to add new features to this existing system because that's the existing system. So now there's a steady stream of new features that the new team needs to implement also, you know, so you have this, you know, continual scope creep um, happening with um, with the rewrite as well. Um, and it's not that it's entirely impossible. There are success stories about rewrites as well. So it, it can definitely be done. And sometimes the economics is just so that it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Richard, in the sense that I, I think you're right that organizations in, you know, I don't think they explicitly incentivize, you know, the production of legacy code, but they implicitly, you know, incentivize the production right. of, of legacy code by, um, but by not having, first of all, not having a focus on what we can call internal quality, uh, or mm-hmm. code quality, but also, uh, if you have this, you know, focus of always deliver, 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 um, you know, if, if you have, if you have a software development team that doesn't know the most efficient way to deliver, you will often, you know, um, you will often be able to pressure such a software development team into, into basically continual crunch mode of firefighting. Um, and, uh, and obviously if, if you're in that sort of situation, you will produce legacy code. I will produce legacy code as well. Sure. Uh, if I'm put into that, that type of organization. Um, but the, but the funny thing is I, I once worked with a, with a client of mine, a company where they um, they'd figured out how to do continuous delivery by themselves. That that wasn't something I helped them with. I just came, you know, I've been I've been visiting them and working with them with them for a couple of months, and then I went and did, did my own thing for a while, and then I came back to them. And in the meantime, they figured out how to do continuous delivery. Um, so you know, they had just you know they actually used Octopus Deploy. So they had just had a button they could press with Octopus Deploy, and you know, new the new thing would just be live on the um, on the uh, on the production system. And and we did that several times today, and I, I I loved it. It was the first time I ever tried that. Um, and what I noticed also was that um, all the nagging from pro- project managers and so on basically stopped. You know, all this, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? That stopped. Actually, it, it turned out in one, you know, I actually remember it turned around so that, you know, we'd been implementing features and, and then we hadn't heard anything back from, from the rest of the stakeholders. And, and, you know, so I contacted the stakeholders and said, well, have you had time to look at all the new features that we'd put into production for you? Yeah, no, we've been too busy. We haven't had time to look at them yet. Um, Right. So th- that's just so such a wonderful um, situation to be in instead of, of having that constant pressure on. That really gives you the feeling of, 
you know, freedom and, and lifts a lot of stress away from you, uh, being able to do that. So, um, I, I, um, so, so that's also in the book, but you know, it's not something that I came up with is you can read about that in a book called Accelerate. Uh, I think I talked about that one last, last time as well. Mm, it's a classic. Yeah. Well, it's not actually not, you know, it's a classic. It probably ought to be a classic. It's not that old. So I don't know if we can call, you know, a two or three year old a book a classic yet. Um, but it probably will become one. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, that's Nicole Forsgren. Of course. Yeah. I, yeah. I, again, I have her on run as all the time. Huh. I think we've only ever had her on Donnet Rocks yeah. once. But, uh, yeah, it's just that, you know, she, she and Humble and Gene Kim and those yeah. guys all, Dora was the organization where they're just showing categorically when you follow these procedures yeah. that that your rate of software delivery gets so high mm -hmm. that your customers are like, hey, can you stop? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you change the mindset. Yeah. You're no longer demanding features. You're like, I'm struggling to keep up with what you're able to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 if you want to boil that book down to 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 one uh, very simple. Um, um, idea it's basically this you know, continuous delivery is an enabler of almost all other good things uh, so so you know when when people come and when organizations come and ask me you know what should we do in order to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do they typically want to be able to deliver faster anyway and say well you 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 have to get to continuous delivery um mm -hmm. That's the but that it's it's difficult it's it's not easy um, but if yeah. you can do that I think most other things will probably sort themselves out as 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 you do that. Mark, whatever you're walking up to that whole silver bullet conversation again. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, we didn't did, did we didn't even talk about continuous delivery in in that um, in that uh, episode, did we? No, and and like you said, it's one of those great enablers. It's very mm -hmm. bullet like. Yeah. That when you have this, uh, it's like there's a paradigm shift about yeah. how you ship software. Like suddenly you really are exercising is the domain differently we, where we're pushing out dark features and we're doing feature flagging mm -hmm. and, and essentially integrating first. And John suit is still not wrong. Like all of this is complexity introduced by our tools. And yet it allows us to explore the domain in a much more profound way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we shouldn't remember because he, I, I believe he said that as well. We shouldn't forget that, there's a lot of complexity in trying to understand what it is that it is that needs to be, you know, developed in the first place. So you still have a lot of um, work cut out for you trying to understand, you know, what is it that all stakeholders actually want? And it may not be what's actually in the spec. If there is a spec, um, you know, there's a lot of work involved with, with actually figuring out, okay, so this is actually what you said yesterday that you wanted. But now right. that you've seen this, are you sure um, but, yeah. but again, the, the ability to have something that is, um, maybe not fully implemented, but maybe half implemented and be, and, and be able to have a discussion about, okay, so this is what it's like right now. And it's, you know, and there's all the, all those, you know, things that it can't do, but, you know, was that what you had in mind? And then, you know, you can sort of adjust course, uh, based on a discussion like that. That's, that's very powerful. You know, um, Mark, one thing I really mm -hmm. love about your writing style is, you, you do get into the technical stuff, but there's it, it's interlaced with so many stories and, uh, you know, maybe fables even that uh, come <laughs> from your experience. And, you know, this this link to your book blog post has a whole bunch of related blog posts that came out of writing the book. And I'm oh, wondering yeah. if some of those stories are actually in the book. 
Um, so what I did was that, well, that, there's uh, quite a few stories in the book as well. Um, but uh, the, the ones that I wrote blog posts about are typically not really in the book. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, I, I think I ended up writing maybe 15 blog posts based on the code that I worked on with the book. Um, and I didn't want to have those stories and those um you know examples and those articles in the book because they were a little bit too .net specific um and and i very much you know even though i use c sharp and .net as the sample code for the book the book is aimed at the general developer um so i was a little bit concerned about tiring the general developer the java developer the the you know the ruby developer i was a little bit you know, concerned that I wouldn't want to tire them too much with, you know, .NET and C-sharp specific things. Um, so that's why, you know, I ran into a lot of interesting things that were more related to, you know, how ASP.NET works or how C-sharp works. Um, so I wrote blog posts about that instead, um, but using the same code base. Um, I and I was also hoping that maybe, you know, if, if someone, you know, comes by those, you know, blog posts which are completely free uh, and they see that and think that that blog post is, is a is a nice blog post maybe they'll buy the book um you never know <laughs> well it's just it's really refreshing to to thank you. you mix it up so well you know i'm gonna learn stuff that i need to be a better programmer but mm -hmm. i'm also gonna get a look inside mark's brain and see how you solve these particular problems i really think that's valuable mm, thank you yeah i hope so so what's next what's next for you uh, so now the book needs to be done. I actually just uh, a few hours ago got the second, I received the second round of proofs um, from the publisher. So now I need to spend a couple of days doing that, but that's not long-term. I don't really know. You know, I, um, we had this, um, I had this, you know, um, I had this, you know, eight months where I could write the book because there wasn't really a lot of business. Uh, it was a little bit, but not a lot of, of business for me. Um, but then, you know, we sort of, you know, when we, when we reached May, maybe something like that, May, May 2021 in Denmark, um, the government lifted a lot of the restrictions that, that had been in a place uh, so far. And I think it was just something psychologically happened to everyone, you know, in software development organizations, not only in Denmark, but also in other places in Europe, uh, that all of a sudden, you know, everyone started to contact me and wanted me at my help with this and that and so on. So I have a lot on my plate at the moment, just, you know, doing consulting and freelance you know development for for various different um customers so that's probably going to be for the next I, that's probably going to last me out for the next six months i think um well and then we'll see if there will be conferences or not um maybe there will be i hope so um, I, I really miss conferences and um and then maybe i'll write another book <laughs> i actually have an idea for another book so but i'll see how this one turns out first very cool <laughs> Well, Mark, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, yeah, you too. Yeah. We'll uh, hope to see you in Copenhagen someday soon. Oh, let me know if you're here. Absolutely. I'll bring a pizza. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. Thank you. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios. 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...